welcome back to the podcast series Shifting the Narrative Women Leading Change by the Sahel and West Africa Club SWAC Secretariat. SWAC is hosted at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, and is an independent international platform. It produces innovative evidence based analysis and research to inform and support more place based policies in West Africa. This podcast series tells the stories of women as civil society actors, activists, authors, leaders, health and humanitarian workers, youth representatives, traders and entrepreneurs in the Sahel and West Africa. We gather first-hand examples of their outstanding work within local communities as well as their important contributions to advancing gender equality and positive change. These conversations also aim to better connect SWAC's evidence-based analysis with civil society advocacy and action through dialogue and knowledge exchange. My name is Dr. Jumo Ayandele, and I am delighted to be your host for this podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Victoria Dao, and she is the executive director of the Elohim Development Foundation, which is a human rights, peace, and development organization in North Central Nigeria that is committed to the well being of vulnerable groups, especially youth and women. Welcome, Dr. Victoria. We're very excited to have you on this platform. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you, Dr. Jumo. My pleasure being here. It's great to hear from you. Same here, same here. So let's just get right into it because we have a very jam-packed session today. So, Victoria, you're working in the area of gender-based violence, GBV, and you work in advocacy, programming, and counseling for victims. Now, SWAC's report on political violence targeting women in West Africa demonstrates that women are really facing unprecedented levels of targeted violence with worrying consequences for their livelihoods and survival. Now, given the experience and the community-based gender programs that you implement in addressing GBV, what do you find most interesting about this report? And second, what are your thoughts as an actor on the ground? Thank you for that question. Looking at the report, it was quite remarkable to note that uh, our sisters in other parts of West Africa were going through the same kind of challenges, you know, that we shared. We had common challenges. But one thing that stood out for me in that report was the fact that here in the North Central, our challenges and the attacks we have on women are not necessarily political. Women are just, they just suffer from the effects of communal crisis and the, the very popular and outrageous farmer headache crisis. We, 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 most women uh, are raped and, you know, abducted from their communities as a weapon of, of war. So we, we have more of that happening in our communities in the North Central. And it's very saddening because um, the effect it has is that uh, we, we have women who have been taken away for months and nobody has found them or heard from them. We have women who uh, have been raped and are traumatized as a result of that. 
And some will never get to receive any form of counsel, but for those we can reach, we try to offer some form of psychosocial support and trauma healing. But I tell you, that it's a very uh, depressing situation down here. And for me, I think more effort will have to be made in that aspect. And I, 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 it would be good to have more researchers coming down to the North Central to see firsthand what is happening in our communities here. Thank you very much for that um, response. And, you know, we're still talking about communal militias, which really leads me to the second question. In Nigeria, it appears that certain actors, such as communal militias, as you started to tease out in, in your response, have continued to really pose the most serious threats to women and girls. Is this really the reality in the communities that you serve and in the programs that you run? And how are you addressing these issues? Okay, that's our reality down here. Most of, uh, we, we work also amongst displaced populations. And most of the displaced populations we have are as a result of communal conflicts and the farmer header uh, crisis. A few from the recent flood. The reality on ground is that we have large portions of uh, numbers of women who have lost their, their, their husbands, their spouses, lost their children. Some have been abducted from their communities. And then some of them, of course, almost or anyone who is displaced has lost the means of livelihood. It has its attendant effects on these women. We have a set of women who are unhappy. Some have gone into depression and impoverished because they don't have any means of, of livelihood. And that is what we see in the communities we serve. We work in very rural and remote communities. And uh, for some of them, they've been moved from those communities to camps, the IDP camps. So our work has had to move from some of these communities into the camps. And you know, the camp settlement is not, is not um, something that should last for so long. But we've had... Uh, the reality on ground is that communities are still so unsafe, so women cannot even go back. And then for those who have lost their spouses, they have to try to put their life together again. We have quite a number of women who are dependent on a spouse or a child, and if they lose those ones, they become you know, totally dependent on the society to help them. So that's the reality we have on ground. We have a lot of women who are already traumatized. We're working with them as an organization, and there are many other organizations, I must say, who are in one way or the other offering some form of support. There are efforts in livelihood training, skill acquisition. Their organizations are offering services in psychosocial support like ours. We're uh, carrying out trauma healing sessions with them, knowledge building sessions, life skill building sessions. We're ensuring as much as possible that uh, we teach them and, you know, build their, help them build resilience so they can adapt to the new life they have to face. So right now, that's the reality we have on ground, Dr. Jumu. And this is very interesting, the work that you do, especially with um, GBV and how you're really helping to address a lot of these challenges that, that women are facing in the communities um, that you go into. And this really is a good segue into the third question that I have for you, which is when we think about gender-based violence, 
we usually focus our attention on interventions and programs that just target women. But we do know that when we think about ending violence, communities require the buy-in and the participation of both women and men in combating not only individual instances of violence, but also systemic and cultural forms of violence. So based off of your expertise and experiences and the work that you're doing, could you tell us a little bit about the role men can play in ending gender-based violence? Thank you for this very uh, interesting question, Dr. Jumo. Okay, in our communities, our communities are basically patriarchal. And a lot of the gender-based violence issues we have stem from our cultural um, practices. Like any other place in Africa, these uh, cultures or norms are set up by men, mostly. Most traditional councils are made up of men. Most decision-making bodies are made up of men. And these are the people who take the decisions concerning our lives as women. And it would be very important to include them by taking the advocacy to their doorsteps. So if we can get them to understand that it is not a women against men fight, it is a we all against injustice kind of arrangement, men tend to be a bit more understanding and how it impacts on them. Interestingly, Dr. Jumo, whenever you go with an advocacy to the communities and you point out how a change in customs or culture will make the lives of their daughters better, they are, they are more acceptable, they open up more to such than when you talk about their wives. We are still not able to say why that happens, but the movement is slow, but we're making some, some progress. And as an organization, uh, in the course of our work, we realized that men also felt left out of the whole campaign against GBV. They feel that uh, the society concentrates and pays too much attention on women, forgetting that men are also victims. So we set up a group, a support group for men uh, in GBV. We had a, a, an inaugural meeting where I was, of course, the only female because we wanted them to be able to speak out and I had to sell the vision. But after that meeting, men were able, they were able to set up a WhatsApp group where they communicate exclusively, they share ideas, they talk to themselves, they encourage themselves. We have older, we have younger men and we have them sharing experiences without any hindrance or fear that... Um, a woman would look down on them because uh, and see them as vulnerable because we realized uh, that is what most men don't want to be seen as. And so they don't speak out. Mm -hmm. But with that support group, the support group is now visiting uh, schools in company of some of our volunteers to talk to the young people at the secondary school level to, you know, talking to them about the dangers of GBV, that's gender-based violence, how to protect yourself, what to do, and most importantly, to speak out if they uh, experience any form of it. It's an ongoing work, but I tell you, it's been very interesting and quite rewarding. Yes, definitely. Sounds very interesting. And what I picked up from, from your response that has really stuck with me or is sticking with me is men are also victims and they need to really move away from seeing men or men seeing themselves as vulnerable. 
in us really addressing um, gender-based violence. Okay, our next question has to do with conflict. And we know that conflict shapes societies at many levels. For women, the impact can be quite devastating. But at the same time, it can also be a door to new opportunities. So this is especially true when they're involved in the peace process. And this brings me to the question that I want to ask you. How do you view women's participation in both formal and informal peace processes in the communities that you work in? Okay, I'll start with the formal pro- uh, informal processes. In the communities, um, we've been able to work with a lot of the women to train them uh, with, and equip them with mediation skills. So we have women working in their communities to, you know, uh, quell little conflicts, mediate, uh, talk to others, talk to women to settle their issues. And most importantly, on a more formal level, we have women um, who have been mainstreamed into early warning and early response groups. These are groups that um, look out for triggers of conflict in their communities and ensure that uh, it's nipped in the bud before it escalates into a much bigger conflict. On a more formal level, the wife of the state governor has um, sponsored a bill that has been put forward at the House of Assembly, and we're hoping that it scales through when after going through reading. Now, this bill is targeted at including women on traditional councils in the state. You might wonder why, what's so important about that. In in the state, the traditional councils are responsible for mediation and peace processes at the community level, and sometimes even at the state level. So you see, most of these traditional councils are totally made up of male participants. There are no females there, because for you to be on the traditional council, you have to be you know, uh, appointed as a chief. And if you're not a chief, you can't be there. And they rarely appoint women as chiefs. So this bill is trying to push for that. So we have more women at the decision table, able to bring in their own views as women, give a more feminine perspective to issues, and generally share their knowledge and their wealth of experience of years of mediating, even at the, at the home front. And we also hope that when eventually more women are elevated to the status of chiefs and included in the traditional council, that these same women can receive some form of training on leadership and mediation and generally how to cope in a male-dominated world because I, I think it will go a long way in helping them represent properly and, you know, helping the peace-building processes that, that we're looking uh, forward to entrenching more in the system. That is definitely important, having that willingness and capacity um, being side by side um, in really being able to address um, a lot of conflict and being part of um, the, the peace process in the communities that they're involved in. This is very good work that you're doing, I'm Dr. Victoria, and thank you again for sharing your experiences um, on that. Okay, so SWAC strives to better connect our evidence-based analysis and data to civil society advocacy and action. How can researchers and analysts work together with civil society organizations and women's groups in really providing more contextualized research? Our research projects should involve them one way or the other. They are better able to identify 
uh, key stakeholders in communities, they have better background knowledge of what we're looking for and could give guidance on how to proceed in the communities. And then another thing is with the current uh, uh, heightened insecurity in the country, it is, it is much easier and much better and more cost effective to partner with local civil society organizations who could you know, uh, um, send out their trained staff to help also uh, gather some information. I think um, partnerships, if they already exist, can be strengthened, and if they do not exist in certain communities, can be built and can be used for the betterment of our society. I think we would get uh, more work done, and of course, we would reach out to more people that way. Thank you so much for that intervention and your recommendations. And with that said, this brings us to the end of our podcast episode. Many thanks again to our guest, Dr. Victoria Dao. We really, really appreciate your insights and your experiences and you sharing the wonderful work and advocacy that you're doing in um, communities that you intervene in. My name, once again, is Dr. Jumo Ayondele, your host. For more information on the publications, as well as references um, that we alluded to in this podcast episode, they can be found on SWAC's MAPTA platform or indeed on the OECD SWAC website. Till next time, speak soon.